Dear listeners, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh and welcome to another episode of Friday Night Live. As you may have heard from our last episode, we're actually running a series on Muslims and the media and we're interviewing different people inshallah. Before we start with our current guest, I would like to give some good news that inshallah we're going to evolve the show. So the show now is going to have a, a different name and is going to run at a different time inshallah. Uh, the different name we're still uh, looking into di- into you know the possible namings. Um, I would like to int- uh, get our um, co-host Sarwa to read us some of the names. Salam alaikum Sarwa. Alaikum salam. So um, read us some of the names that uh, have been suggested, please. Okay, um, there's a couple here. I wasn't expecting to do this, but let's give no this a go. This is live so, radio. Knowledge Nur. Oh, sorry, Knowledge Hour. Generation Islam. Generation Learning. Under the Islamic Spotlight. Under the Spotlight. The Salam Peace Project. The Quest for Rightness. Islam Today, Inshallah Khair Shai, <laughs> um, The Alchemy of Knowledge, and A Higher Truth. Wow, I never thought I'd reject a whole list of, of titles. That's amazing. Um, maybe The Alchemy of Truth, I like that. That's good. But Jazakallah Khairan, whoever wrote this, brilliant, brilliant mind 20 years ago. 20 years ago, these names would have been perfect, but now there is a website called Islam Today. There was a show in the U.S. called uh, Khair Inshallah Show or something. But Jazakallah Khairan, you know, keep going. Um, okay, so um, we're going to make the change by the end of uh, February, Inshallah. Uh, and we'll let you all know. Uh, we will have plenty of shows, very exciting shows about uh, relevant local and international issues to do with Muslims and some with nothing to do with Muslims um, directly. Our guest today, Inshallah, is um, famous if not infamous. Um, by name and by organization. Some people hate him, some love him, and some are just plain scared of him. Like oh. the Y Factor. They were scared of him. Yeah. Oh, they, uh, well, they interviewed me. Well, yeah, but they were scared of you. Right. I heard the, that podcast and they were quite scared of you. Uh, Brother Uthman Badr is the spokesman for Hizb Tahrir. He uh, is doing his PhD in is- economics at uh, University of Western Sydney and also teaching um, at the same university. Uh, Hizb Tahrir is a very well-known political Islamic organization. It's 50, 60, 60 years old now, and it's quite controversial because of what it espouses and the fact that it's been banned in a number of European countries. Most of the uh, Muslims, uh, most of the um, participants of Hizb in Muslim countries have been uh, jailed, tortured, and murdered for their um, political beliefs. And so, as always, there's always a talk in Australia of uh, banning them uh, and of uh, basically throwing them to the wolves. So what we're going to talk to Brother Uthman about today is generally the nature of the media and specifically about the experiences that Hizb tahrir has had with the media and with Brother Uthman as well. So Brother Uthman, Salaam Alaikum. Wa Alaikum Salaam. It's a pleasure to have you at our studios. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's start with yourself. How long have you been um, a spokesman for Hizb tahrir I know that Wasim Durehi was a um, spokesman before you. So how did you come to fill his shoes? Yeah, I think it's been uh, three or four years now. Um, it was just a, a, a change of roles. We see moved on to greener pastures and left me with the uh, unenviable task of dealing with the media. Yeah, so um, so far, are you destroyed? Do you want someone else to take your <laughs> No, 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 it's been okay. It's been good. Um, it's a very interesting role. 
it is um, um, always new, new and interesting challenges. I've tried to open up new avenues like opinion pieces and non-mainstream media as well as the mainstream media. Mm-hmm. So it's certainly an interesting task. But at the end of the day, it's, we take this as work as dawah. Mm. Uh, it's not a uh, it's not a field of choice, yep. uh, but rather of responsibility and obligation. So we we'll take it from that perspective. Yeah. Now uh, I remember once that Hamza Yusuf defined dawah as calling of Islam to non-Muslims rather than calling Muslims to come back to religion. So, but the sentiments that come out of Hasbut Tahrir are not da'wah related at all. They're quite the, yeah. There's there's, a, there's there's a couple of different references to da'wah in the Islamic tradition. What Sheikh Hamza is speaking about there is the da'wah that we, what most of us know the individual level of da'wah. But otherwise, da'wah is a, is a is a broader term that refers to calling towards Allah. So we just make a distinction between the individual da'wah and the, the da'wah of societies. Yep. So when we use the word da'wah, what we mean is calling societies to implement Islam. And it's got nothing to do with the individuals of calling oh, Muslims or non-Muslims. Otherwise, we agree that if you're calling a Muslim to practice, yeah. that's not called da'wah. It's yeah. enjoying the good, nasiha, etc., etc. Okay, yeah, yeah. okay inshallah. And um, so this is basically Hizb tahrirs um, message is da'wah to non-Muslims? No, no, no. Our message is that we are calling the society to implement Islam. Mm. And in fact, this is we make a, a very important distinction between the individual level da'wah, which is important in Islam and has its own role, but that's not the method to... Uh, bring about societal change by individual numbers one after the other yeah. uh, and between calling a society um, and this is important I think it will come out in our discussion because a lot of the controversy comes out not when you're calling an individual private discussions individual one-on-one but when you are calling the entire society and engaging in in what we would call the intellectual and political struggle yeah. the battle for hearts and minds yeah. and ideas how do you think you're um, faring so far in the battle for hearts and minds in Australia? Uh, in Australia, we don't separate the various um, provinces in which we operate, or the various countries in which we operate. Um, overall, in the globe, I think uh, it's been quite successful um, from the perspective of public opinion and the ideas. Uh, and a simple way to measure that would be that you know, talk of the of the caliphate in in the fifties. People said you're crazy, and in fact, they said to Sheikh Taqid uh, Nabahani that he was crazy. What is he talking about? And you can imagine if you put yourself back in that context, where there's a big struggle between capitalism and socialism, and that's that's the be all and end all of what anyone knows. And you're saying no, they're both wrong. We've got to return back to Islam in this very particular form. So whereas now, even Western surveys have shown that Muslim public opinion across the world, in East and West, calls for the establishment of Islam, and particularly even there's been surveys using the word caliphate which are in very large numbers of majorities um, calling for and in favour of uh, this type of um, change in the Muslim world. So what's the role of then um, Hasb al-Tahrid in Australia, um, considering it's a non-Muslim society? and Yeah, uh, in, in origin, because the role of Hasb al-Tahrid as, as an organisation, and we are the same all around the world, is the reception of the caliphate in the Muslim world. Our role, therefore, in Australia is to, is to uh, supplement or complement the work that goes on over there. Um, and that's done by, for example, things like the government here has a, has a major role that it plays over there, as is the case with America or Europe, accounting their foreign policy uh, and so on and so forth. But there's also another role, which is that uh, because we do live in non-Islamic societies, there's a lot of pressures that force or that are, that are imposed upon Muslims to towards integration, assimilation and so on and so forth to try and uh, engage in that battle of ideas uh, to, to, to resist those pushes and to preserve the Muslim identity, spheres, particularly as spheres which um, others perhaps don't work in, so you know, fiqh and all that things aside. Yeah. But the, the the discussion we have values, Australian values, Australian Muslims, integration, non-integration, political participation, elections, and all that sort of 
Yeah. Um, all those areas. Just uh, uh, stopping for a moment at Australian values this is something that I want to expand into uh, further on, inshallah. So yeah. we'll just uh, put that into um, a. Um, on the bench. On the bench, yeah. I was going to say on the board, but that's okay. So can you elaborate more on your role um, with Hezbo Tahrir in Australia? So you're the media representative. Yep. So what does that entail essentially? Well, essentially, uh, essentially the role of media representative is to represent the organisation uh, in the mainstream media uh, and what that means is obviously we call for our ids in the society at large so that means we interact um, on the individual level at the level of the community at the level of uh, of government of media uh, academia uh, and etc so this is a particular role and there are other roles for other areas of interaction with the media and obviously it's important because the media happens to be the main medium of communicating ideas in a society so issuing press releases, um, instigating uh, discussion on new topics, writing opinion pieces uh, and the like because it's the type of the work that I do. Yeah, I've noticed on your website um, that you've uh, you've wrote a couple of uh, sort of statements and I think the last one that you wrote was about the um, draconian laws deliver injustice and put a slam on trial. Yeah. So can it's you... press release. Sorry? It's a press release. Oh, press release. Yeah. Sorry. Um Oh, it doesn't really say that here. Okay. It's okay. It says breaking. No, it doesn't say that either. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Just ask um, So can you tell me more about that? So tell me more about the trial and what your... Um, yeah, well, that's a good example of the type of issues that we deal with. So we've had anti-terror laws instituted in this country following 9-11. It started the process, but really picked up after 2005, after the, 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 the uh, bombings in London, uh, because policymakers here thought, oh, my God, there's a homegrown threat. We need to do something. So these laws have been instituted and and our assessment of it and assessment even of other Muslim and non-Muslim uh, interested parties has been that a lot of this has been politicised. It's been a political um, implementation as opposed to a legal or a security-based one. Um, so these laws have then been used to make examples of individuals uh, in a number of terrorist, terrorism cases that have occurred in Sydney and Melbourne. Um, and so, in fact, I think we've commented on, on probably all of the ones that there's been convictions and sentences in, they're all different, but there is a common thread through them where the lower standards of the new laws have been used to come up to convictions and very harsh sentences um, for crimes or for actions which in the pub without these laws would probably not even have been um, convictable in the first instance. So the idea is well, conviction has happened in the media, the media's come out and said, oh my God, there's these terrorists and the police has been successful and the law has been successful in putting them aside. And so we're coming and saying, oh, hang on a minute, um, let's take a step back here. Even, uh, even you know, lawyers, judges, ex-high court judges, civil liberties, they were all up in arms when these laws were instituted. And now just because convictions are being made under them, we're all ignoring this and we're saying, oh, geez, terrorists off the street. What these people have done is plan to plan a conspiracy to do something and you're giving them 18 years or 20 years. So there's a discussion that needs to be had uh, and, and the idea is to instigate that and to put out an opinion on that basis. Uh, in relation to that um, uh, press release yep. in particular, I've noticed that you use like um, terms such as, um, I mean, paragraph six says, we advise Muslims in Australia not to be caught up in this hysteria and these witch hunts. I mean, um, what's the effect of words in, using words such as witch hunts? I mean, it's a very sort of emotive words. It causes, I mean, it's not very objective. Yep. It's very, very subjective and causes yeah. some emotional response. That's right. Well, that's the work of politics. Um, and the idea is, number one, because it's a press release, 
and you're dealing with the media, you have to be concise. Um, you have to be to the point and you have to get the message across um, in the shortest amount of words possible. And so you do want to also get across the right idea. And we do believe these are um, witch hunts, right? But obviously witch hunts are in the political terminology, not in the fact that there's witches and they're trying to be hunted down. <laughs> but the idea is that these are people that um, are being made an example of um, without there actually being a basis for these convictions and these harsh sentences that are being put through. Um, uh, so that's why that sort of terminology I mean, is used. Did you read the um, the transcript or um, did you have... Yes. So you read the transcript yeah, of the uh, yeah. of the proceedings? Yeah, with, with most of these... Actually, with this one, the transcript wasn't out at the time of the press release. Um, there was commentary in the media and so we had to go off the, the, the actual quotations as opposed to the journalist's own yeah, Quotations is out of context. Yeah, but the, the quotations that were given by judges, you have to do your best to try and put them in context. Um, but in fact, but I, I, obviously we do our best to get our hands on those transcripts. I, in fact, call the High Court, the Victorian Supreme Court, asking them why isn't it out. Usually you put it out when the sentence goes out and the, the registrar couldn't help him beyond saying, oh, look, it'll take another week, two weeks, maybe longer. In fact, it took much longer than that for it to come out. But in most other instances, yes, we read the transcript, we go through. In fact, we've been following the case from the very beginning. Um, it's not the sentencing is the last part. The case, even when it first people are arrested, it's in the media, mm. and then when they go to court, and then when something's development, it's a long process that you have to follow quite closely. To Do you have lawyers following this up, or is it just yourselves? Um, no, well, because we're not involved ourselves in the. It's not a case that we're fighting. There's no lawyers involved. Yes, when we need to seek legal advice, we have um, access to lawyers that we can use. But to thus far in these sort of cases. It's not a it's not a legal issue. Mm. There's enough out there that shows it's it's a political issue, yep. and um, even a um, even a um, superficial reading of on a following of these issues and the transcripts and the law and so forth mm. shows uh, what is being what is what is the reality behind what's happening. Yep. Um, I've got a question as well. I've always noticed that whenever Hizbut Tahrir comes, there is an unreserved attack by any organization, many of the um, you know Christian Jewish organizations, many politicians as well, um, attack you like there's no tomorrow. It becomes like a sort of a, a cool thing to bash Hezbollah Tahrir. It doesn't matter what they say. It doesn't matter what they stand for. It doesn't even matter that every time they come out, they say, we're not calling for the establishment of Khalifa mm. in Australia, but in Muslim countries. There's always that attack. How do you guys deal with that uh, sort of, I guess, misinformation? And do you think it's just um, from... Uh, actually, no, no, answer me that question because I've got another uh, larger question after that as well. How do we deal with that? Yeah. Well, to be honest, we expect that in the first instance and um, and I think that will become clearer if we have the discussion about the nature of the media itself. Um, and it's not just our group. There are other uh, Muslims, individuals and organizations that also... The reason I'm asking you, though, Uthman, is yeah. because Hizb al-Tahrir yeah. is systematic it's organized it's yep. clear about what it says it doesn't change its mind yep. the other people that are being attacked they're being attacked for mm. Allah Alam for good reason because yep. they said really stupid things yeah because the things that they say are nonsensical even to Muslims mm. so in some cases in, others in, is in many cases Allah but, Alam about but, yeah, them yeah yeah in any case the point is the common the common point between the two is that what the people are attacking uh, what these non-Muslims are attacking whether they be Christians or Jews or the journalists or seculars or liberals is the message. They're not interested in Hezbollah Tahrir as a name. I can't even pronounce it properly. <laughs> um, well, they're interested in the IDs. And they know the IDs we call for. 
and 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 the ideas we call for and our key message touches at the essence of the struggle that uh, is ablaze between uh, secular liberalism and Islam globally in 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 the modern era in our era that we live in now. Um, so the call for the caliphate, the call for the implementation of Sharia in the, Sharia law, sorry, in the Muslim world, um, our opinions on uh, the war in Iraq and so on and so forth, which goes beyond just saying we're against the war. Right, so socialists say they were against the war, but we're saying we're against the war. The Australian, the Australian intervention is wrong. Australian troops must come home. The, the Muslims over there have a right to resist, and the alternative is the caliphate. So it's because people know after a while that these are the key messages, mm. um, and they understand because it's systematic, right? Because it's systematic, because it's organised. Because if you have a lone player, it doesn't really make sense. He's just out there because he's going to make a bit of noise. He's going to go around. People don't. You're not going to take him seriously. But the one who is organized, who is systematic, who is global, who has an organized effort, you take that seriously. And um, it's not a coincidence that they deal with us in the way that they do. Okay. Um, another question I had also because of the attack that's on you. Um, you always call for the implementation of Sharia, while others also call for a demented implementation, like a, the, the story that uh, came out a couple of months ago of a guy who's had you know, a bunch of brothers coming into his house and belting the crap out of him. Now, this, as far as I understand, is not Sharia because Sharia is a, a civil code. It, it, you know, it's part of a state. It, people don't just go around willy-nilly beating up others. But yet they found people who came out and said, this is Sharia and I support it fully, right? So do you have, I mean, yeah. Do you um, find yourself that you have to keep clarifying or defining what Sharia is? I mean, there's so many people who, who say, you know, uh, who have different opinions about what Sharia could be. Mm. So do you, uh, you know, struggle with this sort of thing with the media? I mean, it must get very tiring having yeah, to clarify well, yourself all the, the time. The work overall is tiring because it's repetitive, obviously. But that's, the nature of, that's the nature of the beast. But um, the answer to your question is yes and no. On the one hand, yes, we do clarify. We do make out the point, but we, we, we make it a point that our approach is not defensive or apologetic. So we don't keep saying... You know, Islam is a message of peace. No, we're not terrorists because Islam means peace and it's like this. It's like we, we, we make it a point that we're making it a positive, confident approach. This is Islam and no, Muslims are not the issue. You guys are the issue. It's not the terrorist who blows up someone in Afghanistan. It's you guys who have gone in and invaded the country and you've killed tens of thousands of people and now you want us to focus on the reaction. right? Not that we're justifying the reaction, but why are you talking about the reaction whilst you're ignoring the original provocation? So usually our repetition is on trying to put the focus where we think it belongs, which is on the original aggression. And again, obviously, that, that uh, takes the ire of, of, of the media or of politicians and so on and so forth. But we don't, we don't sort of adopt this approach of trying to be defensive and, re- and redefining in that sense as such. So, so what's the um, effect been so far in terms of how people responded or um, the media responded to um, Hezbo Tahrir? Well, the media responded in the way, as I said, we expected to respond, which is a very, um, uh, what's the word, a very hostile. So, okay, so it hasn't, there's no positive. Well, there is probably, if you, there is, I mean, I don't want to paint the whole media with the same brush, uh, but by and large, I think it's justified to paint the media with the same brush. There are some exceptions. So, for example, I know there's some, uh, John Cleary at the ABC, he calls me every now and then to have a discussion on Sunday nights on his religious program, which is an hour-long discussion with a panel of, you know, academics or people who, who know their stuff. Um, uh, opinion pieces that I write for the Drum, the ABC, again, 
I think it's a slightly better avenue, but they are the exception to the rule. By and large, the media, uh, not only because it's anti-Islamic, but because that's the nature of the media, but Islam, because Islam is antithetical to secular liberalism, which defines the paradigms within which the media works and the establishment of which it is a part, um, it's it's exacerbated in the case of Islam and Muslims. So what I mean by the nature of the media, I mean now the media is no longer interested um, primarily in accurate reporting. It's interested by the it's a business model. It's interested in profits, and that means sensationalism, and that means inaccurate reporting on all fronts, not just Islam and Muslims on all fronts. In fact, there was a survey last year by Essential Research and and people they surveyed Australians, uh, and they think had, it was like 69% saying the media is biased across the board, and 59% saying it's inaccurate reporting across the board. Um, but as I said, with Islam, what happens is it's thought that the media is an, it's a neutral body that sort of passes on the news and people make judgments, but it's not. It's part of the establishment, and it is defined by those very same boundaries, which are secular, which are liberal, and therefore Islam forms the, the, the quintessential other, if you will. Um, and therefore, it's sensational in the first instance. Islam is the perfect enemy, if you will. Um, and so when the two come together, you should expect a hostile approach, and that's exactly what uh, we get. Okay. Um, something I wanted to ask as well. We've been talking to a lot of people about the media, and we get different understandings of how it operates. Mm. Um, so, for example, uh, when we spoke to Brother Zachariah Matthews, he mentioned that a lot of the, um, m- you know, the misreporting, I guess you could call it, comes from not so much a campaign of, of misinformation about Islam, but from the fact that people don't understand or their ideas about Islam are ingrained from years of, uh, you know, um, other types of media and movies, etc. Mm. While uh, I've had another, um, you know, person tell me that um, the way it's done in, in newspapers, for example, or in magazines that a person would write something, and would submit that article to editors or sub-editors, and then these sub-editors would add the party line to it, if you will. Right. So, uh, what's your, um, you know, perspective on this? Yeah, I probably lean towards a second opinion. I don't think it's a case of, um, you know, good journalists versus bad journalists, or journalists in the know and journalists who are just ignorant. It's because it's been uh, it's been so long, and the 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 the, the, the campaign is so sustained. Against uh, against Islam and anything to do with Islam and Muslims. Um, so the way I understand the media works is, as I said, number one, it's a business model across the board. Yep. So and and number two, there are ideological boundaries, as I said, which are defined by it's being secular, it's being liberal, and therefore Islam forms the opposites to these. Um, and then what happens is obviously even if there is someone that wants to, in the first instance, so most of these journalists, the idea that comes across to them when you say something. About Islam, you know, particularly on where there are where there are differences, like the caliphate, like Sharia law, like jihad, and so on and so forth. The starting point is already that they have a different idea and that they disagree. But even if they were to write a neutral piece, as you said, it will go to the editor, it will go to the sub-editors, it will go to and and there is a line yeah. along we push. And in fact, I've seen this with specific articles where, um, where over time you see the line, for example, the Telegraph is going to push or the Sun Herald is going to push. Not only the line, in fact, sometimes there's specific paragraphs that any article about us it ends with the same paragraph so even when a new journalist writes an article you know he's writing something else but in the end you've seen this paragraph so you know the editor's yeah, done yeah. done their bit over the last how many years have you been doing this three or four, three or four. and um how many years has um uh, wasim been doing it 
Uh, how many years did he do it? Yeah. Um, oh, God, I'm not sure to be Another honest. He, he, was, he, he wasn't anyone before him, so was he, he like? Uh, did he start from 9/11, or was he before that? Probably after that. After that, Soon okay. After. So, so over the seven, eight years that have passed, mm. have you noticed any change at all? I mean, you know, you're saying that Hezbollah, for example, which is, I guess, a, a more um, an, uh, an organization with a clearer, uh, you know, um, method of communication that, you know, what you say is, is very clear and uh, honest. Um, have you noticed any uh, changes in the way the media perceives you or even in the, you know, the presenters that keep, um, you know, bringing you onto their shows? Is there a better understanding or are they exactly the same way as they were before? Uh, no, I think there is a better understanding. Um, but I wouldn't. it's not in the way that now there's a better understanding so we can expect less hostility. There's better understanding, but that will, in fact, better only sharpen the approach that they take uh, against us. But there has been better because of the sustained um, commentary, the sustained, sustained approach that we've taken. So, for example, to give a concrete example, in fact, I think you mentioned it as well, um, in the, before they used to always mention, start with Hezbollah Tahrir, it's banned he, he, and he, and half of those he, he, and he would be wrong. Right? So, for example, you said we're banned in most European countries, we're not banned in any European country. At all. Really? Um, Weren't you banned in Belgium? No, no. No country at all, except in Germany where there's a ban on association but not on, um, sorry, on public activities but not on actually being a member of the party. That's okay. the only thing that there is in Europe. Yeah. Um, so generally the media would always start off by saying, oh, banned in Europe, banned here, banned there. And the only place where we were ever banned was in the, the you know, the Arab, the, under the tyrants in the, yeah, in the yeah. Muslim world. Um, but because, and we always made a point of this, so we would, we would make a point, even if it was just one sentence. That's saying this is an error of fact. And we've seen over the time, they don't say that anymore. They don't repeat those. In fact, in a couple of them, I took them to account. And I said, look, you know, if you don't correct this, we'll be taking the issue further. Yeah. And so over time, through persistence, that's changed. But it's it's nominal in the fact that it, all that is they understand you better, mm. which is good. We don't want you know, factual errors to be in the picture. But um, we don't expect from better understandings that there to be any lightening of of the struggle that uh, that is that we find to be natural. I understand. That's great. Um, d dear listeners, I uh, would first of all uh, like to uh, say salams to our brother Muadh from Indonesia. Uh, he um, sent a message and asked that I say that to him so his wife will think he's a big shot. So salam alaikum to brother Muadh. Uh, we're going to take a break, just a three-minute break, inshallah. Um, in the meantime, if you want to ask questions or call in uh, off-air, you're most welcome to do so. Our number is 9724-3355. We will be back after the break, inshallah. And we're back. There is a theory of a uh, lesser Islamophobia and a greater Islamophobia. This theory, I read it in uh, loonwatch.com. And it basically mentions that if the lesser um, Islamophobia is a campaign by people to, you know, n um, vilify Muslims, all of all Muslims, for you know um, financial gain or for other political gain, you know, to get more votes or whatever. But there is also um, the greater Islamophobia, which is when a country like the U.S., for example, wants to go to war with a Muslim country like Iraq or Afghanistan or Iran or Syria. They will raise uh, the levels of Islamophobia by, for example, highlighting terrorist or attempted terrorist attacks, etc., in on uh, American soil, um, so that people would feel more justified in invading countries like Afghanistan and Iraq. Now, this connects as well with the last 400 years of colonization and the fact that to justify colonization to their people, 
um, you know, Christian missionaries and, and um, the, uh, theorists and politicians have always tried to make Muslims or the East, Muslims being part of it, um, as being very backwards, very um, in need of the freedoms that the West offers. So this is how I'd like to discuss with you now in regards to the, how the media now presents Muslims. In the same way that it was presenting Muslims 100 years ago, the women are battered, they're covered behind their uh, hijab and niqab, and they have to be freed from it, and the men are, you know, dangerous with big beards and angry eyes and, you know, a, a dagger in the hand. Horses. Yeah. horses, you've got the horses. And the horses, yes. So there's no horses now, there's just um, done-up cars and banks down. So before Brother Uthman um, uh, shares this with us, inshallah, uh, again to any of our listeners, if you would like to call, our number is 972-4335. Don't be shy, we will um, change your voice so people won't know who you are. Please, brother. Yeah, that's it's a very important part of the discussion, I think. Um, but it goes back even much further than the beginning of, of colonization yep. or colonialism. Um, in fact, <coughs> if I remember correctly, um, who was in the French Orientalist by the name of Count Henry uh, de Castry in, his, in a book he wrote titled Islam in the late 19th century, he writes that he'd be amazed by what Muslims would think if they knew what, Euro what in Europe people were saying about Muslims and singing in their homes, not only saying but in their homes, which are religiously yeah. accredited um, you know, th songs they sing in church. Uh, before even before the 12th century, i.e., before the Crusades, and he, and he was saying that because they were all based on the presumption, uh, which was ignorance. He said it himself, which was ignorance that Muslims are idol worshippers. They, 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 Muhammad was the Antichrist. They worship. Um, they're like pagans, yeah. and so so this this is this has been part of the European, and from there the Western psyche for a very long time. Now, if we come forward to the colonial period, then again it was used. Four political ends. So you want to conquer the land, you want to exploit the land, you have to, um, or the cultural aspect is part of the economic, the social, the political, and the military as well. So, for example, the missionaries that went in first, even before the armies, as early as the 16th century, had missionaries in places like Malta, which is where it started because that was the boundaries between the Ottoman Caliphate and Europe. But these are missionary schools. So, for yeah. example, later on, the the American Association of Arts and Science, yep. the Syrian Scientific Association. Uh, for example, in, in I think it was in about the 18th century or 19th century, 1820, where you had the first one in Beirut, yep. where it really started. So for a long time, it was just, they were unsuccessful. Um, and it spread from there to the rest of the Levant or greater Syria. Yep. But the point is that what these associations were doing were, number one, stirring emotions of nationalism, which were later used to put the Arabs against the Turks and the Turks against the Arabs and so on and so forth. Uh, but they were also pushing specific ideas against Islam and pushing the Western culture. So th that's common that throughout Western history they have used uh, the cultural element and the ideological... The Oriental, that's what Orientum, Orientalism started on this basis, that there's an Orient, we need to understand why they're so backwards, uh, let's study them. But the study, particularly with Islam, was to show why it's wrong, not to understand it, from a neutral academic perspective. Now, from, um, I mean, for our listeners maybe who uh, have always heard about Orientalism uh, as a concept but they don't really understand it, would you like to just sort of uh, give us a few words about what it really means, what Orientalism means? Yeah. Was it started also by uh, Edward Said or what, did it always exist? Just the. No, Edward Said is very late. The identification of it is what I mean. No, no, no. no it's much, much before Edward Said. He just came later on. 
and um, came up with theories that uh, have found some acceptability amongst academics. Orientalism, I mean, the word orient is the opposite of the Occident. The Occident is the West, and the orient um, defined in juxtaposition with this, which is a common approach, a political approach of defining people as opposed to you. So it's not a geographical or regional location? In origin, yes, but it's also got that ideological and political connotations as well. But otherwise, the Occident is the West and the Orient is the East, mm-hmm. which is the way they defined it. So the Far East was China, the East was India and so forth, and the Middle East and, and so forth. So Orientalism is the study of the Orient. Yeah. And it includes a lot of things. Mm-hmm. It includes study of China, of Asians and stuff they do, their culture. But part of it is study of Arabs and Muslims and Islam. Uh, and But the point is that this study, when it first started, was part of the colonial project. It was part of, okay, un- let's understand these backward people who we're trying to conquer so that we can conquer them better. Um, and the idea, part of that was to show why Islam is wrong. And so a lot of the early studies are all about this. Goldziers, origins of, of hadith, and they're quite deep. In fact, a lot of these orientalists knew Arabic very well. Um, they studied Islam quite deeply, but it was just that it wasn't a neutral, it wasn't a sincere approach. Yep. Um, there have been some benefits. The, all students of Arabic will know that one of the best dictionaries is the Hans Wehr Dictionary, which is written by a German Orientalist, because they knew the language and they needed to do these sort of stuff as well. So there's been po- positives as well. But by and large, it was part of the colonial project, uh, if you will, the intellectual wing yep. of, of of colonialism. Okay, that's great. Um, apparently, my voice is not clear. I hope it's clearer now. Um, so how does that connect... Let's first of all go into the war, uh, the recent wars in um, mm. in Afghanistan and Iraq, yep. um, and then we'll we'll move into uh, more uh, locally Australia. I mean, y- can you really say that this has anything to do with with the invasion of Afghanistan, for example? I mean, the invasion of Afghanistan happened directly because of a you know a direct attack by people from I don't know where. Yeah. Towards. Yeah. Um. Well, the, the, the issue is it's not it's not it's not as if. You know, there's a, a new approach starts for a specific war. The issue is that uh, colonialism, the approach before by the before by Europe and Britain in particular, followed after World War Two by America, is a constant process. So, and, and this is sometimes we have a problem. People think the war, you know, the, the Afghan war, the Iraq war, was the start of American aggression in in the Middle East. It wasn't from World War Two. And following that, particularly in Syria, people, a lot of people don't know the history of Syria and the Assad regime and how they came to power and the coups and the counter-coups in the 60s and 70s that were instigated by Europe and America um, fighting each other for, for, for influence in the region. In the 60s, you say? In 60s. This was while most of the Arab world was still under colonization? Well, no, this is after, or physical colonization was over after yeah. independence, okay. but it's the period of proxy yeah. colonization. Um, and this was a common approach across the region of coups, and there'd be a counter-coup and another one. And in fact, eventually Hafez al-Assad came through uh, with a coup to end all the other coups and uh, with American patronage. But the point is that it's a continual process. So you've got this foreign enemy, if you will, which you're trying to dominate and maintain dominance over and exploit. So the process of demonizing them is also constant, and it continues so it's not a case of, you know, we come to the 1990s and now we need to make up something for the Afghan war. No, it's just a case of, yeah, okay, now the war, we can push it up. Yeah. We can up the ante in the media and in the press and the politicians. Yeah. And they do that. So, you know, um, George Bush didn't use the word crusade unknowingly. Not, I don't want to say he's not an idiot. But <laughs> but the point is, he doesn't write his speeches. The speech writers write his speeches and they're yeah. checked and rechecked. Mm. And words are put in for political purposes deliberately. So you put the word in, 
he has his affiliates. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean crusade. I just meant we're going to go there too. You know, we're not against Islam. We're not against Muslims. We're just against the terrorists and so on and so forth. So it's but a this, more continual I mean, process. This but would, again, like um, th- this would fit with Hizb tahrir ideology and ideas. Others have actually said something completely different, that mm. George Bush is an idiot and sometimes he does make mistakes like that. And even, um, I don't know how much of a credibility that has, but Hamza Isa, for example, when he met Bush in the very beginning and he mm. had hopes that maybe George Bush was not so, so much of a ideologue, um, he wanted to call it uh, the, the, war, um, the war in Iraq, he wanted to call it just... What is it? Absolute justice? Infinite justice. Infinite justice. And, um, you know, Hamza Yusuf told him actually only uh, God can, you know, exact infinite justice. And so they called it enduring freedom or something mm. like that. Um, so again, and also like with, with George Bush specifically, a lot of the things that he said didn't make any sense at all. So it doesn't then look like, you know, he has his, you know, uh, speeches written so well and that every word coming out of his mouth has that ideology behind it. Mm. Um that's a specific example. I, I would argue he does have his speeches written, but at times you have to speak without a speech, and at times you have to even if you even if you have it written, but you're not very intelligent, mm. you'll make mistakes. But the point is, by and large, politicians have their speeches written. They've got speechwriters, and any key speech, like like a state of the union address or an address that's going to be done before you're launching war, is not something the guy just writes up and goes goes out and says it. It's yeah. checked. It's rechecked. The cabinet will discuss it. What would this mean? What will implications this will have? This is the way it's done across the board. So, but the point is, the larger point is not negated by any of that. I don't think anyone out there would discount the fact that Islamophobia or the demonization of Islam and Muslims is used as a as a as a wing in the political endeavor to exploit and to implement the foreign policy in the Muslim world, which is the key point uh, that is being made. Okay, now moving then to Australia, mm. do you think the same level of you know campaigning? Uh, I don't want to say against Islam, but you know for that purpose, um, is done in Australia as well, or to the same level that it's done in America? Um, it's done. It's the same essence. In essence, it's the same, but obviously the level and the uh, intensity is obviously different because Australia is not as active and as important as pl- a player in the foreign policy as America or European nations are. But in essence, it's it's exactly the same, and we've seen examples of we've seen examples of this. So, for example, you know the Burke issue comes up. Um, it's not it's not Tony Abbott who starts it or Kevin Rudd who starts it. It's some side. It's Corey Bernardi starts it. He's a little buddy. He's right. He writes it on his blog. It's not even on the it's not even on a, on the, on his parliamentary website, but it's on his own blog, right? And again, that's not done unintentionally. So it's done on his blog. People say, oh, he said this. I didn't say this. It's a personal opinion. Tony Abbott comes out and says. Oh, it's his personal opinion. It's not the party position, but I can understand where he's coming from. Yeah. I can understand why an issue to do with 0.001% of what Muslim women in the country do, he can understand the issue, right? So what Tony Abbott's doing, he's giving that ridiculous view, which should be absolutely rejected, and so this is this is ridiculous. He's given it enough air to give it more. Kev Rudd said similar thing. The other people said, oh, it's not our party policy, but it's something we think needs to be discussed. Mm. Right, and the issue moves on. Do you think it just they they do it just to test the waters, see the response, see the media response, and then that's right. Well, there's different there's different objectives at different times, but with the book, that's exactly what they wanted to do. They want to see the response of the media, the response of the Muslim community, as well, because if they want to say if it's complete silence, then they know that when we do need to do it. See, when you want to plan a change, it's not you want to do it straight away. Test the waters. How are things? Can we do it in the future? What are the implications going to be? Because they can see it's going to happen in Europe. 
are, are we going to need to follow as well? Which is why when it happened here, our approach was for the community to say, you can't stay silent. You have to say something. Yeah. If they know it's not acceptable, have a, have a say, have an intellectual say, an intelligent uh, contribution to the debate. Do you think that the Australian community, I mean, the Muslim community in Australia, is able to provide an intellectual debate about this? Absolutely. Obviously, I'd have no, I have no doubts about the ability. It's more a question of there's an apprehension, or there's an app- because of the way the media works, because it's so hostile to anything Islam. Muslim, a lot of people are apprehensive of getting involved. Um, and of having missed, but otherwise, and then obviously we know that there's different organisations and there's a lack of unity that would probably be there um, on issues that that are common. So I'm not saying we have to get rid of the differences, but there should be work on the issues that are common for everyone. And I think that's it's improving, like on the issue of Syria and others. Um, but the point is that even if it's not a united stance, have your say what you want to say, because everyone in the community believed it was wrong, even if you didn't agree that. Wearing a niqab was obligatory, yeah. but it was—it's it, a political um, attack that has no basis. It wasn't—I mean, it wasn't Asia that brought it up. It wasn't the police that said, "Oh, we're having issues with—we pull over niqabis and you know they're giving us trouble." It was a politician. It was—it was a politician who brought it up, and now we're being told it's a security concern, and now it's become a huge issue over a year. And then there's one case of of Sister Matthews, and it's—it's it's become a huge issue. But that's what they need, because now the public, the Australian, the wider community. For them, it's a, it's a concern, it's a threat. So later on, if they say, we're going to ban it, no one's going to say anything. The white people going to we understand, yeah, it's liberties and this, but we understand, and they're going to be able to uh, go through with it unless there is you know, a more sustained effort to show that, no, we're not going to take this um, silently. Mm. I think um, this is a question that's maybe already been answered, and we've asked this before to our other guests as well. Mm. Um, when it comes to you know, sentiments um, against Muslims, it seems to be that there are three different factors um, that contribute to it. First of all, there is general people's, I guess you could say, xenophobia or fear of the different, especially if a person, you know, has a, a massive beard or he doesn't smile or a woman, you know, wears hijab and doesn't shake hands. All these things, you know, they, they may cause um, concerns, right? Then you have the media who always seem to highlight, you know, stories including Muslims and violence even though, you know, that act of violence or, you know, such incidents happen with any other community. And then you have politicians as well, which, as we've spoken about before, they have their own ideas of trying to catch up with, you know, Western uh, um, policies. Which one feeds into the other? I mean, does it start mm-hmm. from pol- politicians and then, mm-hmm. uh, you know, rolls down to the media and the, the people started? Are the elements in the community that have these feelings uh, the fuel that, you know, fires up the media and the politicians? Um, I think they go hand in hand, but obviously the influence as to direction and result comes from those who have influence, which is the media and the politicians, mm-hmm. not the people. Yep. So, yes, certainly, as I said, in, in the psych of the Westerner, if I can generalize, uh, there is an apprehension of Islam at the very least, if not a, um, a, complete, distru- a complete distrust. Um, and it's, it's quite interesting, actually, if you know, uh, uh, having heard a lot of stories of reverts or converts, um, you find... Normal people, absolutely normal people, these ones have come to Islam in the end. The story was thought of like, oh, I used to be a Christian, I was born up as a Catholic, and the last thing on my mind ever would be to consider Islam as an option. Or when I started looking into different things, when I felt you know things were not good, the last thing I would have ever thought, and like, well, why would it be the last thing you ever thought? But is, is it something really, really bad? Mm. But these are normal people, these are not people that have an agenda against anyone. So it's there in the psyche. Now, but the issue is, if how do you deal with this? If the media and the politicians allowed for a, a neutral discussion, interaction of the Muslims, that would wither away. 
right? It'll wither away because over time, when you see something and it goes against what you believe, you adjust. But what the media and politicians do because they need to do it for their policies, domestic yeah. and foreign, yeah. is that they try to they exacerbate those things mm. and they reinforce them yeah. by this sensationalism and by this demonization. It's persistent, mm. so they reinforce it and then they're able to use it as well when they need. Uh, to wage war or to institute a domestic policy. So that's the way I think it works. Yeah. Um, in, in terms of the media's um, representation of Muslims and how you know non-Muslim view Muslims in Australia, uh, this of course is based on you know um, f- you know a, a campaign of I guess making Muslims uh, look about vilifying Muslims, but it's also uh, due to some real things that have happened. You know, real Muslims who have done you know horrible things, illegal things, who have completely thrown uh, the law away. Uh, so it can't be said that it's uh, you know completely fabricated. These things do happen, mm. right? Uh, now, uh, how uh, much do you think of a contribution does Hizb Tahrir do, do in uh, contributing to that uh, sentiment? I ask this because you mentioned before that Hizb Tahrir's uh, focus is basically on telling the truth as it is to the media, and especially when it comes to you know the wars in Syria and Afghanistan and all these things. A lot of times that I myself, a Muslim, having knowing what Hizb al-Tahrir is all about, when I hear what you guys say on the media, it just seems that you deliberately try Provoke. to say the most controversial things, hmm. right? It's like you're purposely provoking. Yeah. Hmm. Like there is a sentiment, for example, an idea that Muslims, you know, um, want to kill Australians. And then you come out and you say, well, if Afghans kill Australians, that's uh, Australians' fault. And you don't try to sort of... You know, put it into context or into a protocol. Or you don't even like. You know, it's not like you try and they stop you. You just don't have that. Okay, um, I'll take that in two questions. The first one was how much do Muslims generally contribute? As as I said, certain, or certainly there are Muslims that do wrong things, but uh, I think that's that's a needle in the haystack with respect to what else is happening out there. In other words, even if they didn't do that, that would not stop the the media storm that occurs. Nevertheless, Muslims, that's not an excuse, Muslims, sh- the number, number, number one way to respond to all this, which is a topic which probably we may not be able to cover today, is by behaving as Muslims in word and deed in everything they do. The second part, um, are, we, are we purposefully provoking? Um, I, it's certainly not a policy to be purposefully provoking. The issue is that the, our, our area of focus um, is in an area that is inherently controversial, and it's at the core of the battle of hearts, the battle of hearts and minds and the ideas. And um, if I could draw a parallel, obviously, um, I'll go back to the age of the Prophet in Mecca, where it's it's the same scenario that what he's saying, right? However he says it, and in fact, even the way he says it, is controversial. And it's not because of the style he's using or the words he's saying or the things he's not saying. It's because he's challenging long-held beliefs and practices with a very clear and concise idea that is diametrically opposed to what they have. And he's shaking the society by that ideologically, right? So if we see, for example, um, economic practices and the and the, the child that is buried alive, and the ideas and the idol worship, and this is, however you say it, right? And obviously the issue on the media, you have to be concise, you have to try and get the message across um, very succinctly and with the right emotion as well. Uh, it's going to be controversial. Um, uh, as I regard the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, his very first public address on Mount Safa, when he, when he said, you know, if I told you there's army behind me, would you believe me? And I said, yes, we've never, we've never come across a lie with you. First thing he said to them 
was then I am a messenger for inni nadirun lakum bayna yaday adabin alim I'm a warner coming to you in front of I warning you of an imminent severe torment and he started calling the tribes by their names save yourself from the fire save yourself from the fire and straight away from that point onwards there was controversy and the struggle and the conflict and so on and so, on and so forth to the extent that for example a very good example that the Quran itself um, mentions this which all Muslims know is the first First words of just what about what some people translate it as about what are they asking, but it's it's not really that because it's not saying Amma Yasalun. Ammayatasa'alun from from uh which has denotations of reciprocity groups. In other words, about discussion. what about what is the reverberating discussion and questioning amongst the people. And that's what they were discussing, Day of Judgment. He's saying this, it's called Anne, is it right, is it wrong? All right, could I um, ask you now in the context of Australia? Yep. Um, has there been a positive effect with your tactic? Essentially, I find that you guys are very straightforward. You um, you don't really beat around the bush and you say it how it is. Mm. Um, has there been a positive effect with that sort of tactic? Yeah, obviously. I, I with, think with the media? With the media, I think there has. As I said, there's been some changes in the information that they put out. But the point is, that question can only be measured by what positive thing were you expecting in the first place? Well, so right? they can stop talking about Muslims and... That's not going to happen. That's not, if you're expecting that positive, it's always going to be negative. Really? <laughs> to, be, to be very frank, because the point is... So then you're, you're in a way, you're always expecting the worst, so... No, it's not, it's not a case of expecting the worst, it's a case of being realistic. I'm not being realistic, I shouldn't say that as an ideologue. But okay. it's a case of understanding the reality that... What's behind all this is not a journalist who doesn't know about Islam. It's the fact that the the, the, the struggle is, is natural. It has to take place. Uh, unless you step back and you say, well, I'm not going to say anything about Islam, right? Or, we're not going to challenge you. You can do whatever you want in the Muslim world. You can do whatever you want in here, which is not an option. But if you engage, then they have an idea and you have an idea and these are diametrically opposed. There's going to be a struggle until and unless one dominates the other. And until then, the struggle is going to... So the positive, what the positive you're looking for is there are sincere elements in the society. There are some sincere elements in the media. There are sincere elements in academia. You want to try and win them or at the very least to neutralize them. That's the best you can do. Um, and if that's a, it's a, that's a, a bleak um, uh, assessment of the reality, that's the case. And again, I would bring everyone back to the seat of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi He's the best hour carrier. He couldn't do it better than he did it. And that's what he was presented with. So if we think we can do it in a more subtle way or we can do it in a way that there will be Maybe less conflict. Maybe more diplomatic. No, but even if my point is the results. Whatever way you use, if you think you can do it in a way that results in less conflict and less struggle in the profit, then there's something wrong. Mm. So the point is, it's, it, the issue is understanding the way the media works, that it's part of the establishment. It's not this neutral institution on the side. And understand the nature of the struggle that is before us. That really allows us there to assess. There are maybe um, n- natures of struggle, uh, and maybe the the context of the Prophet's dawah in, in Mecca is not the same as the struggle here. But that's a completely different uh, argument, and inshallah, we may bring you in to, to have that sure. in, uh, at, at a later time, inshallah. Sure. Maybe if we it, can sort of conclude on um, where to from here. Yeah, I've got a question actually. Oh, I've so got a question. We could Sorry. Ask a question, and then we could ask where to from here. Uh, so this is from uh, Sister Anna Rose. From Kinambul. Uh she says it seems as though Hezbollah Tahrir have quite a negative view of Western society, and that the group is focused on creating an Islamic system in the Islamic world. 
Why then is the majority of HC activity seemingly conducted within Western countries rather than in the actual societies that where HD seeks to create change? I.e., why don't the people who feel so strongly about creating or shaping a change go and participate in the change that is being wrought right now in those very societies? So basically, why don't you go back where you came from? Hmm. Um, there's, again, there's, I think, two questions being asked there. And because it was so long, I think I fought on the first one. But the the as to the second one, as to seemingly, seeming, I think seemingly was the key word there, um, the majority of our work is in the Muslim world. The majority of our members are in the Muslim world. Um, but obviously for a person who lives in the West and naturally comes into contact more with news and interaction with members and with activities and with what's happening in the West, it may seem that we have more work in the West, but it's certainly not the case. The vast majority of our work is in the Muslim world. And the stuff we do here, as I said, and this is why we don't just go back where we came from, is because there's an important role to be played here. Yep. And there's things you can do here that are far better, more effective than you can do there. And so we do that rather than to go back and... Uh, I would also have accepted uh, the answer of uh, we're here because of what the West has done to the Muslim world, forcing us to leave it and come to the West. Some people have said that. I've heard that answer Yeah, before. well, it's natural. I mean, the point is, it's not as if we sent members to Australia to start <laughs> to provoke the media or anything yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Muslims were here. Some of those Muslims happened to be members of Hezbollah Tahrir. And so they organized themselves and said, well, what can we do to help the effort back home? Mm. And over time, that's developed. And that's the natural way in a globalized world things things work. Jazakallah yeah. Um One minute. Where to from here? What's the future for you? In one minute, because we have to finish after that. Yeah. Uh, well, as I said, there's the, the the struggle that is before us, which is between secular liberalism and Islam, um, will only intensify, um, and and um, the the way forward, the way we see the way forward is for Muslims across the board to engage in the way that they can, uh, and obviously in the Australian context, not that's not talking about military intervention or raising swords or anything like that, but it's getting involved. Um, and really I think this is the key point with the media Either you engage or you disengage And I think most people agree that we need to engage But the engagement should be on the basis of Understanding how the media works And understanding what We seek to achieve, what Muslims seek to achieve Through the, is it, is it just Local benefits Just local objectives or As an Ummah do we have, do we have um, broader objectives That uh, need to be Considered Jazakallah khairan brother Athman. Well, yeah. um, we unfortunately come to the end of our show. Uh, we would first of all like to uh, thank Brother Uthman Bader for coming on the show and for discussing these ideas with us. Jazakallah khairan. Oh, yeah. We'd also like to thank uh, our co-host um, Sarwa Abdurrahim for coming in and providing her um, invaluable insights and contributions. Jazakallah khairan. Thank you, Sarwa. Thank you, Nasser. Um, also, I'd like to thank the brother who gave in these brilliant names. And I would like to uh, get our listeners to vote in on the names as well. Uh, the name that I've chosen, um, you know, out of this list, not the final name, okay, out of this list is The Alchemy of Knowledge. I really like it. It, it you know, strikes a chord with me. I've got another uh, two names which I wrote on the train on the way to the radio station today. The Burning Bush. George which, Bush? No, The Burning Bush. Oh, that's what I thought as well. I said yes. no to it straight away. Um, I, I think maybe that uh, Nabi uh, Musa alayhi salam belongs to us more. Uh, and the rap with a W, as in from uh, Surah Al-Muddathar. And uh, the idea mm. is that we have to unwrap ourselves and you know, uh, engage with the... Can I suggest with the, the alchemy of knowledge and truth, I think they'd probably be absolute... How about the alchemy of opinion or the alchemy of... Because you have different opinions, isn't that the idea? That you contest different opinions. I, I like the alchemy of something, but opinion is, is not, not opinion, a poetic something, word. Some synonym of opinion. 
the the alchemy of biting each other's uh, heads off um so yes it is nine o'clock now and uh, i would like uh, to um end the show um with um another special guest an- another special guest what's your name ahmed sorry how are you ahmed good alhamdulillah Can give a short speech thank you for turning into the program don't forget to tune in next week <laughs> Probably should have said that myself. Jazakallah <laughs> khairan, Ahmed. Uh, so this is Nasr Khatib uh, ending uh, this Friday Night Live. I'll see you next week, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. <laughs>